We are in Leviticus chapter 27 in our morning study. If you want to turn there with me. We simply pick up where we left off last week. Travel through the scripture verse by verse. Let the Lord lead his word to the hearts he wants to hear. It says in Leviticus chapter 27, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When a man consecrates a vow, certain persons to the Lord, according to your valuation, if your valuation is a male from 20 years old to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If it is a female, then the valuation shall be 30 shekels. And if from 5 years old up to 20 years old, then your valuation uh, for a male shall be 20 shekels, and a female 10 shekels. And if from a month old up to five years old and your valuation for a male shall be five shekels of silver and for a female your valuation shall be three shekels of silver and if from 60 years old and above if it is a male then your valuation shall be 15 shekels and for a female 10 shekels so sort of an odd passage of scripture for us in this modern era but they were placing the value of individuals that would serve the Lord based upon the agricultural society that they lived in and the amount of work they were capable of doing. Now, in our liberated modern world, and you see lesser values assigned to women, don't think of that too negatively because it was very much a cultural thing. They wanted the men to work doing physical labor and things that were much more intense in that way and they also were very cautious about having women work amongst men so that limited especially in this culture how much women were going to be working with men so so in this setting if an individual says you know for instance we'll talk about it specifically you know i want to dedicate myself to service to the Lord you know, for the rest of my days. Or if my son, I want him to work and assist the priests in the temple. Or my daughter. Then this is the way that they would establish the value of what that was going to be. And there's a reason there's a value assigned to it. Because there's a redemption process that we're going to look at. As far as, you know, winning someone back from the vow that you had put them into. Uh, a New Testament thought in this, because there are uh, vows that we personally can make and take uh, to the Lord. It's a sort of thing that's been lost in the church in a lot of ways. But if we say to the Lord, I'm going to give you such and such. Then there's a commitment we've made 
that should be followed through with. Um, Jesus addresses the issue in Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. I'll just read 33 and 37, where he said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, I don't mean to injure any of us in this room, but divorce is rampant in our culture. And we take vows before the Lord, for better or for worse, rich or poor, you know, sickness, health, death do us part. And so often the vows are broken. Now, way too deep a subject to go all the way into here, but the three biblical precepts we see for divorce are abuse, adultery, and abandonment. Most people are very familiar with the issue of adultery from the scripture, but uh, abuse, adultery, and abandonment. Beyond that, the scripture doesn't leave any room for breaking of the vow. If, if we are in this room, and, and here's the thing, the chances are 50% of us have experienced it. That's, that's the reality of the culture that we live in. It must be that once we know the Lord, and we stand before Him, and we take that vow, that we have a very different frame of mind than what the world does. That it is a vow to the Lord. <laughs> and it's it's the for better or for worse that is the most difficult, is it not? Right? You know, I've heard it often said, you depart from the word and drift away from the Lord and suddenly your soulmate is your cellmate, right? It's difficult, the prison that we live in sometimes. But the commitment is to the Lord, and if we'll turn our hearts to the Lord and let our yes be yes, and our no be no, and our I do be I do. If we'll turn to the Lord and say, I made a commitment here, and it's horrible. <laughs> I need you to help me. He will help us. Right? Any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But let him who asks believe and not doubt. He who doubts should not think that he'll receive anything. He's an unstable man in all of his ways, blown and tossed like the waves of the sea. James chapter 1. God will grant you the wisdom, grant you the understanding you need for that marriage, for that situation. Vows. We live in a culture that doesn't think anything of breaking vows. It's constantly just throwing away and destroying you know, the number of fatherless children in America is staggering. Staggering. A lot of what we see going on in the news right now, the rebellion, the uprising, the rioting, the destruction of our own history is because fathers have abandoned their children. Family is shattered. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That takes a very powerful commitment when you walk with the Lord. 
So just to review these and get an understanding of the valuation that's set forward here, ages 0 to 4, males, 5 shekels. Females, 3 shekels. Ages 5 to 19, males, 20 shekels. Females, 10 shekels. Ages 20 to 59, males, 50 shekels. Females, 30 shekels. 60 and over, 15 shekels for the men, 10 shekels for the ladies. It has to do with that agricultural society and how much work are they going to be capable of doing. You think of Samuel, right? That prophet and his mother dedicates him to the Lord. And as soon as he is weaned, she turns him over to Eli, the priest, and he serves in the temple of the Lord. This ministry here, there are 1,500 Calvary chapels around the world, Bible college campuses all over the world, uh, missionary efforts all over the world, because one mother, Chuck Smith's mom, had a dying child, Chuck's sister, in her hands. And rather than go to the hospital, she went to the pastor and asked the pastor to pray that the Lord would restore the life to her daughter. And she didn't tell anybody, but as that pastor was praying over her daughter, she as a mother dedicated Chuck's life to the Lord. She didn't tell Chuck that until long after he had committed himself to the ministry. She didn't want to steer him with her commitment. The Lord healed the sister, and she took her vow very seriously. Chuck couldn't even read at that point, and she started teaching him to read from the King James Bible. And he would sit, according to him, for hours at a time and read to his mother. That's how he learned to read. He learned years later that she wasn't even as capable of, of reading as he was. She was just dedicated to seeing her vow to the Lord fulfilled. He had no intentions of that. He was headed towards working as a surgeon. And he was at a summer youth camp when he heard clearly from the Lord. And he came home to announce to his parents, I'm abandoning the pursuit of medicine and I'm going to serve the Lord with my life. Prophet Samuel, anointed Saul, anointed David, foundational in the growth and development of Israel, Chuck Smith, so many others, where we look at the individual and we think, wow, now there's a commitment to the Lord. I often wonder about the commitment that was behind that individual's commitment, the parents that were praying, the grandparents that were praying. You know, the youth pastor who just recognized something and dedicated their heart to pray for that person. It's an interesting thing, the way the Lord works in our lives. Look at Leviticus 27, verse 8. But if he is too poor to pay your evaluation, then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall set a value for him according to the ability of him who vowed the priest shall value him. So the priest is going to set this 
value based upon the person and their ability. Often, poverty was associated with disability. Okay, very often, because the culture would not allow you to just be lazy. There was no uh, free handout. There was a welfare system, but you even had to work for that. Right? They would allow the poor to glean amongst the fields and the vineyards. They could go out and work and collect food for themselves, but you had to work for that. The person who fell into poverty very often was the person who had some kind of disability. So here, as you see this statement of the priest will set the value, he's literally going to look at what are our needs here at the temple? What is this individual capable of? And how can they serve the Lord? So very often, we look at people and situations through the eye and the lens of the world. Yeah, I mentioned Samuel and his anointing of David, right? As he came into the house of Jesse and asked that man to bring me your sons. And he sees each one of them one after another. And he's thinking, now there is a king. That's the definite head and shoulders above handsome, strapping young man. <clears throat> this is clearly the one I should anoint. And the Lord says, no, not him. Works his way down through until he gets to no sons left in the house. Do you have any more children? The one forgotten son who's out in the field tending the sheep is brought in, David. And there we get that message where Samuel is told, I do not look upon men as men look upon them. The Lord says, I look upon their heart. I see them for what they are internally. The priest doesn't value them based upon poverty or upon their wealth. He values them upon how can they serve the Lord and what is the need of the Lord. Maybe he's going to see the individual and think this is perfect. This situation and this person, even their inability to perform the way others do, serves me very well. There's a passage in Luke, chapter 21, begins at verse 1. Speaking of the Lord, he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. That's, that's literally a penny. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. I was raised by a widow who lived her life that way. We had a little garage, and the back half of the garage was an efficiency apartment. And she decided, when we could have used that to rent out and better our family, that she was going to contact the Fellowship of Child Evangelism and ask that the traveling teachers who go into the public schools and take students out to another location and teach them a Bible class and then return them to public schools. I don't know if you're aware that that happens. She requested that 
any teachers from the region be allowed to stay in that apartment. And she did that the whole time we lived there. It became known as the prophet's chambers. And those men came in cycle and would stay and say, who knows how many thousands, literally, as these men traveled all the way to the top of Maine. That was in Glenburn where we lived. So from central Maine all the way to Aroostook County, these men were traveling all over, and they would come back and stay there. That was their home base that they lived out of. At one time, there were five of them in cycle that were going through there. And I got to see firsthand men working in the ministry continuously, and they worked in my life. Most of you know my story. I abandoned that, walked away. But when I returned to the Lord, those were the things that were ingrained in my mind. That poor widow's investment in the kingdom. It's, it's funny how we often look at those who do some big thing and everybody goes, wow. And they've done it out of the abundance. And the ones who have little to nothing that go completely unnoticed, those are the ones that catch the Lord's eye. We have an opportunity to serve. Maybe you're that person. Maybe you're sitting here this morning thinking, I don't really have anything to offer, or I don't have much to offer. I'm too young, or I'm too old. You need to know whether the Lord's telling you to dedicate yourself to him. And if he is, you let the Lord put the value on that. that that's for him to judge. Right? Maybe you're going to work in the life of that one individual nobody else could reach. God's been sending minister after minister after minister to them. But you're perfectly fit in mentality and conversation to be with them and disciple them and train them. There's a usefulness to the Lord that the Lord assesses, not you. Not you. Let the Lord make the determination. 27 verse 9, if it is an animal that a man may bring as an offering to the Lord, all that anyone gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not substitute it or exchange it, good for bad, bad for good. And if he at all exchanges animal for animal, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. For it is an unclean, for if it is an unclean animal, which they do not offer as sacrifice to the Lord, then he shall present the animal before the priest. The priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad, as you, the priest, shall value it, so it shall be. But if he wants at all to redeem it, then he must add one-fifth to your value. If the vow has been made, however it is, and you bring the animal, clean or unclean, then the priest is the one who gets to determine that value. You know, if it's some big ox, the, the priest says, well, the Levites could use that to do a lot of plowing rather than even, you know, having it sacrificed. So that's of service to the Lord, and that's how we'll use it. If the person wants to redeem it back to themselves, then the priest will say, well, it has a great value to us, so this is the value, and if you want to redeem it back to yourself, you're going to have to pay this price and then add 20% to that. Because you're, you're taking it away from the Lord. Now, I, I don't want you to read anything into it. I really don't. But it's interesting to me, as I study the law in the scripture, that if someone steals, 
When they repay, they have to repay and then add 20%. Here, if something has been vowed to the Lord and then it's going to be taken back, you're going to add 20%. I wonder if the Lord isn't assigning a value, saying, that belonged to me, it was given to me, and if you're going to take it back, then you're going to have to pay the extra. So interesting the way the Lord balances the scales for us. 27.14, when a man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord, then the priest shall set a value for it, whether it is good or bad. You know, someone might, you know, say, I gave them my whole house and my whole property. And they gave, you know, they set this massive value. on Somebody else says, yeah, well, they only put this much. Well, yeah, but yours was falling in and needed repair and was a small, you know, parcel of land. So the priest gets to be the assessor on the situation. A man dedicates his house to be holy to the Lord. Then the priest shall set the value for it, whether it is good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. If he who dedicates it wants to redeem his house, then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall be his. You've got to pay the Lord back for what you're taking back to yourself. 27.16 If a man dedicates to the Lord part of a field of his possession. Then the evaluation shall be according to the seed for it, how much it could grow. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. Now, this allowed them right here, from this point forward in history, to establish for inflation or deflation of the market, the value of the shekel. So they could always look back here and say, yes, but... Hundreds of years have passed, and now we're, we're even using a different coin. So they would do the translation across currency and say, okay, so in our modern currency, this is what the value would be. God is establishing an anchor point here for them to make determinations by. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. Remember <clears throat> that they weren't allowed to sell their land. Right? It's referred to as sale here often, but it was lease because it had to return to the original family every 50 years in the year of Jubilee. On the 50th year, it would come back to the original family and the original ownership. So the lease agreements were always signed based upon what the fields were capable of producing for crops. And if you had a particularly good set of fields, then yours might be more valuable than your neighbor's. So everyone in this culture understands exactly how they're going to value these fields. It feels a little dry at the moment, but follow through the rest of this chapter. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall reckon to him the money due according to the years that remain till Jubilee, and that shall be dedicated from your valuation. So if a number of years have passed and you've only got, you know, 30 years until Jubilee or even shorter, if there's only a few years or five years, then the valuation of the land will only be according to the time remaining until Jubilee. So everything's done according to a very systematic outline here. And if he who dedicates the field ever wishes to redeem it, 
then he must add one-fifth of the money of your valuation to it, and it shall belong to him. And if he does not want to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it is released in the jubilee, shall be holy to the Lord as a devoted field. It shall be the possession of the priests. Again, the idea of jubilee and the forgiving of debts is not so much the forgiving of debts as it is the completion of debts, that they've finished the term of lease and now things need to return to their original ownership. The Lord wants each of the tribes to retain their territory. He doesn't want uh, their territory to be continuously shrinking until you know Benjamin, let's just say, as a tribe, has nothing. Uh, their territories are to remain the same, and they're allowed to lease. So land sales were all uh, predicted according to the uh, coming of the year of Jubilee. 27 verse 22, And if a man dedicates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not the field of his possession, so this is something he's leased, right? This, this whole idea of leasing land. And the priest shall reckon to him the worth of your value, uh, valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall give your valuation on that day as a holy offering to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to the one who owned the land, as a possession, and all your valuations shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, 20 giras to the shekel. So now we even get the definition of what the shekel is, which the gira is uh, the smallest unit of monetary measurement at this time. And so they could calculate that throughout the ages, as I said, as the monetary systems shifted and changed. 2726. But the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or a sheep or it is the Lord's. Uh, within the law, the Lord has already set out that the firstborn is always the Lord's. The, the Lord's portion is always the firstborn. Uh, and uh, they had a whole parameter of things we've already been through as far as if it was a clean animal that could be offered and sacrificed, then that would you know, be used that way. If the family wanted to redeem it back and say, okay, this is the firstborn. I keep using the ox as an example. This is the firstborn ox uh, to this uh, female. Uh, it should go to the Lord, but we'll take it to the priest. We'll allow him to establish the value of the ox and we'll give to the priest and the temple the value plus the 20% and we'll redeem this ox back to ourselves in order to use it that way. Uh, the firstborn children of each of the tribes were also supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, obviously not for sacrifice, uh, but for use and service to the Lord. And the families almost always redeemed the child back to themselves. It was you know, a ritual and a blessing to the Lord to have that child in your family. So in verse 26, but the firstborn of the animals, which should be the Lord's firstborn, no man shall dedicate, whether it is an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord. You don't get to dedicate something that already belongs to the Lord. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall redeem it according 
to your valuation and shall add one-fifth to it, or if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to your valuation. You know, a donkey was often used by the Israelites to ride and to use as a beast of burden, but it couldn't be offered to the Lord. It didn't have a split hoof and didn't chew the cud the way the other animals did, so it was an unclean animal, couldn't be offered as sacrifice, had to be redeemed uh, almost always. Sometimes the priests would keep them and use them, but again, here is the Lord setting out how these things were to be you know, used and divided for uh, you know, the use of the, the, the temple and the purposes of the Lord. Nevertheless, uh, no devoted offering that a man may devote. Um, the firstborn animal. Yes, right. Nevertheless, no devoted offering that a man may devote to the Lord of all that he has, both man and beast of the field of his possession, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted offering is most holy to the Lord. So the first one of the animals, obviously, as we talked about, Exodus 13, verse 2, told us, belonged to the Lord. It was not allowed to give it to the Lord in, in a vow. Only the clean animals would be sacrificed. Um, it should be uh, um, according to the valuation. However, an unclean firstborn animal could either be sold or redeemed, bought back from the Lord. No person, verse 29, under the ban who may become uh, doomed to destruction among men shall be redeemed, but surely be put to death. Now, <clears throat> this verse is particularly difficult for translators, and as such, particularly difficult for pastors, because the Lord didn't allow for any human sacrifice. Uh, we see a couple of occasions in the scripture where people did things outside the parameters of God's wishes in regard to human sacrifice, but God never asks for humans to be sacrificed in. Uh, and uh, some who translate this do strange things, creating human sacrifice from this. The best scholars that I've been able to read and understand from point to 1 Samuel chapter 15, where King Saul was commanded to bring God's judgment on the Amalekites, and then he did not, and he ends up being doomed because they were not doomed. So if you read it in light of God saying, for instance, that the entire race of the Amalekites needs to be wiped out. Now, if you've not read that passage and you're not familiar with that, the Amalekites had come to the place as a race where they were more brutal than perhaps any before or since. They, they, they were vicious people, murdering their own children, killing the tribes and nations around them, uh, incredibly wicked and idolatrous. Then God said they've got to go. I've sent my message to them endlessly, and they aren't responding, and they're getting worse and worse, and we need to get rid of everything that is Amalekite. He sends Saul to do it, and Saul doesn't. Now, just so you understand the picture, that's the moment where Saul loses his kingdom because of his disobedience to the Lord. It's told to him by the prophet Samuel. And on top of that, we see that Saul ends up losing his life and his son Jonathan to an Amalekite 
at the end of his life. Had he done what the Lord had told him to do, he might not have been put to death the way he was. Add to that, you go all the way to Esther and the men who were trying to wipe out the entire nation of Israel, descendants of King Agai, the Amalekite. And as far as we can tell, that actually goes all the way to Jesus Christ and Herod, who wiped out all the children in Bethlehem trying to kill Jesus Christ, was also a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite. The disobedience to the Lord. When the Lord says, look, if somebody falls under my condemnation and they need to be put to death, there's no redeeming them. Right? Our hearts sort of do that, and we live in this modern culture that you know is constantly screaming, judge not, you know. <clears throat> if God has judged, he is the judge, and he gets to judge. We don't get to say one way or another in regard to these things. As much as we actually think of ourselves when we see someone else condemned, because that's what's going on, when we want to extend grace and mercy to someone like that, we very often are thinking, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. Well, it is happening to them. So learn the lesson through their failure and their mistake and don't do the things that would cause it to happen to you. That's the whole point the Lord is making here. There are people who the Lord is going to deem as doomed and you can't redeem them. They, they are going to fall under the judgment of the Lord. Think about the number of ministers today that are literally rewriting the Bible in order to remove judgment. Rob Bell, publishing, you know, Love Wins. He's literally saying in the book, in the end, Lucifer himself is going to receive salvation from Jesus Christ and be with us in heaven. Ludicrous. Right? He's telling everyone who will read his book that basically there is no hell. If you end up there and find yourself there, don't worry. You're going to get let out at some point and be redeemed. See, we're, we're viewing that through the lens of, I don't want to experience that, so let me just change what God has mandated here. Isaiah and John in the book of Revelation told us that anyone who takes away from the words of this book, his name will be taken away from the book of life. Anyone who adds to this book, the curses found in this book will be added to them. I don't want to experience either one of those things. Leave the book alone. If the Lord declares someone as condemned, now think about how far that goes as our culture is trying to shift away. Oh, well, don't call homosexuality a sin. Look, homosexuality is a sin. But let's be clear, so isn't gossip, okay? And God lumps murderers and gossips together. Wow, right? Because we'll look across at someone else and go, like the hypocritical Pharisee, thank goodness I'm not like that guy. Yes, we are. And it is the grace of God that saves every one of us. But let us not redefine sin and condemnation. 
The thing that will redeem a person away from it is from stepping out from underneath the condemnation that God has clearly defined. You don't want to experience that judgment? Stop being that thing. Stop doing that thing. Live according to God's word. Close this out, verse 30. It says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants it all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. Well, that's kind of a losing proposition, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to redeem tithe back to yourself, then you're going to have to add one-fifth to it. So, so you, you keep it back for yourself, but in the end you've got to pay it back to the Lord anyway and then add one-fifth to it. It already belongs to the Lord, is what he's saying. You, 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 in the end, you can't take it from him. Because he will not allow himself to be robbed. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock, whatever passes under the rod, uh, that's the, the uh, measuring rod of the uh, shepherd or the herdsman, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He shall not inquire whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. And if he exchanges it at all, then both it and the one exchanged for it shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, that's a good one. Skip, no, we'll take ten. Give God eleven. You're going to give God eleven? Okay. God appreciates it. He's also going to take number ten. They belong to him. You're going to have to add to it. The, the tithe belongs to him. Now, I start discussing tithes, and, and the whole church just sort of like locks up. you got to understand the blessing that the Lord promises with giving him tithes. You know, I, nothing enrages people more than talking about taking their money away. You start talking about tithe, and instantly people got all kinds of opinions about different things. Or they just get really quiet and don't want to talk about it at all. Just want to avoid the subject. Well, here's the thing. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 10. The Lord says, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. That's the only place in the scripture you're going to find that. Where God says, it's okay to test me in this. Right? Jesus even quotes Deuteronomy and says, you shall not test the Lord your God. But here God says, test me. Try me. Just try it on for size. See if it works. Let me prove to you what I'm saying to you right now. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And then beyond that, verse 11, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. That's a promise from the scripture, a challenge from the Lord. Try me now in this, right? 
Don't we so often feel like, you know, I just, I just start to get ahead and the car breaks down. I just, and now the roof's leaking and now this and now that. God is literally the devourer that would consume what you have. The Lord says, I will rebuke the devourer if you will trust me in this. If you'll follow me in this. See, so, so often Christians want to say, oh, well, we're in the New Testament. We're not under the law. Right? I'm not being smug about this. Follow what I'm trying to encourage us this morning to embrace this blessing right here. Right? Who in this room doesn't want the windows of heaven opened that you'd be poured out so much that <clears throat> you wouldn't be able to contain it, right? Every one of us wants that. <clears throat> if we will trust the Lord, he says right here he'll do that. Christians will often say, well, we're not under the law. See the Old Testament. <clears throat> it's not commanded in the New Testament. And some will even pull out of Corinthians and say, right here, Paul said, let every man give according to as he had purposed in his own heart. And that verse had to do with what we would call offerings, not tithes. Paul had told the churches to take up a collection <coughs> so that he could give it to the Jews who were the Jewish Christians who were starving to death in Jerusalem because of the persecution that had come upon them. So he encourages them to give the tithe and then beyond that, let every man give as he had purposed in his own heart. So often when people say, well, tithe isn't a New Testament thing. I'm going to give you two verses. Luke chapter 11, verse 42, Jesus speaking, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue, and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These guys would literally go to market and buy the, you know, mint that they were going to use that week, and they would go home, and they would divide all of the mint up into ten equal piles by weight. They would measure each one until they were exactly the same. Then they would take one pile and take it into the priests and say, this is my offering for the Lord. They were very careful to give one-tenth of everything to the Lord, but they had missed taking care of justice and the love of God. Notice this. He then says, these you ought to have done. New Testament, Jesus teaching, you should have been very careful about giving your tithe without leaving out the other undone. New Testament teaching from Jesus Christ, that tithing is important. How about Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that he there may be no collection when I come. You need to be putting money away every week when you guys have church, he's saying. There is plenty, right? There's Hebrews uh, encouraging us, all kinds of New Testament 
teaching on us as the church tithing to the Lord. So we have the encouragement. Certainly we're not under the law. I want to be clear about that. Uh, you know, we don't have that legal obligation. Uh, but we have all kinds of encouragement to give to the Lord one-tenth of our entire substance. And at no point does he take away the promise that he laid out for us in Malachi. If we would give to the Lord, he'd open the windows of heaven so that you couldn't even contain it. My encouragement to us with this close of Leviticus chapter 27 is that the Lord is the source of all of these things that we just read about. And that's why he's saying, when you make a vow, when you dedicate a thing to me, when you give tithes, as I quoted from the New Testament, you need to let your yes be yes and your no be no. You can't go into this as a New Testament Christian just sort of hiding from what the Scripture lays out. If, if you think that the Lord is saying something to you this morning about a vow you've made, you dedicated yourself to the work of the Lord at some point and you've fallen away from that. If you had something you dedicated to the Lord and you haven't followed through, if you haven't trusted with the things the Lord is providing for you with, I would encourage you to take the time to pray and understand the blessing that's behind this, right? We know the character of God. This isn't him standing you know, at his throne with a loaded gun pointed right at you saying, give it up right now, son. This is him saying, if you'll cooperate with me, you're going to receive the blessing like you can't imagine. So very often the reason the blessing isn't there is because the failure on our part. Tell me, tell me that you haven't experienced what I have where we make a dedication and then in the end we fall through, we don't do it, and then we end up paying more for it in the end. Right? The 20%, the added measure. Trust the Lord in his goodness. Let him speak to your heart and guide your behavior. Experience the fulfillment in your life. Lastly, 27 verse 34 these are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. So interesting to me that this commandment is coming to them and they haven't even entered the land yet. Right? They haven't even stepped into the promises yet. And God is saying, oh, it's going to be so good. You won't believe it. You're going to have so much abundance. You're going to have it. These guys are probably thinking, when am I ever going to own a house? You know, so I'm living in a tent presently. The promises are coming. The fulfillments are on their way. Trust that the Lord, hear, hear me, church, this morning. Trust that the Lord is going to accomplish what he has set out to do. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are so grateful for you. So grateful for your love. So grateful. All that you provide. All that you are. Help us to be men and women that rely upon you. That don't look to earthly things for fulfillment, but instead that we are looking to you and trusting you for what it is you want to do. 
Help us to live a life of abandonment. One that just casts off all that is in the past and looks forward to what it is you want to do. Lord, we long for your return. We're thankful for your promise of return and our remembrance this morning in communion. As we see the chaos of the world, we would plead that you would come quickly, Maranatha, as John said. But at the same time, we understand your patience and the way that you do not want anyone to perish. Help us to be men and women who preach your kingdom and call people to repentance, that they would come into your kingdom and experience your fulfillment. Use us as your ministers. Use us as your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.